Welcome to the Visegrad Insight podcast from Central Europe on Central Europe. My name is Zsuzsanna Szelényi. I'm a former Hungarian politician and author of the book Tainted Democracy, Viktor Orban and the Subversion of Hungary. And I work on the Central European University Democracy Institute Leadership Academy uh, for Central European uh, public leaders. And I really would like to recommend for all listeners this wonderful podcast, Visegrad Insight, which is about Central Europe for Central Europeans and for everyone who is interested in European politics. Greetings to all our Visegrad Inside listeners. My name is Malik Banat and I'm here with you after what has been a pretty heavy week for the CE region amid the G20 summit and the final days of the COP27 summit. Uh, but these big conferences were overshadowed by the tragic death of two Polish citizens on the Polish border with Ukraine last week. Um, it came as a result of rockets or air defense debris falling on Polish territory and soil after um, a reign of terror of Russian missile strikes all over Ukrainian territory. We have at first seen competing narratives on what exactly happened from the Ukrainian side and then on the other side from Washington. Um, but as it stands, Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kolebon confirmed on Friday that Ukrainian experts are currently working on site of the tragedy place and participating in findings with their Polish colleagues. Now, there has been a lot of speculation as of what this all means and whether and whether Warsaw will trigger consultation talks with its allies uh, as per Article 4 of the NATO Treaty. Um, but as things stand, uh, the Polish side has refrained uh, from officially confirming such moves, uh, instead waiting to hear more about the origin of this missile strike from the investigation. Now, I will turn to our editor-in-chief, Wojciech Przybylski, for a proper review of the facts on ground. Yes, indeed, it was a, an accident, an accident involving uh, an interceptor missile, which was shot uh, at a Russian barrage um, of rockets that were flying over Ukraine to destroy critical infrastructure and uh, do damage to civilian targets. Ukrainians uh, were using S-300 system, which is uh, Soviet times uh, design in Russian produced a system of anti-air defense. And apparently this rocket uh, went astray and didn't self-destruct and hit a target on the Polish territory. If you look on the map, it's quite clear that uh, Russians, which are uh, Russians who are using the, uh, the the Belarusian territory to attack cities in Ukraine, could have been shooting a missile against the Lviv target, which is south of uh, Belarus, and such a missile coming from Brest uh, or around Brest area in Belarus going towards Lviv had to be inter intercepted around the border of uh, Poland and Ukraine. The border in some cases is further to the east, further to the west, uh, where the rocket fell down when, when it killed people. It was, it was such an incident, it was such a place on a map. And, uh, and yes, Russians will continue to target uh, cities involving Lviv, and that means that such accidents 
can happen again, and we should be definitely prepared for uh, collateral damage in this war uh, that Ukraine fights uh, against Russia. Uh, uh, it, it defends itself and it defends uh, the European peace. Thank you, Wojtek. And of course, more commentary on that is available on our website. Wojtek has authored a piece uh, promptly after the accident explaining why, regardless of the origin, uh, Moscow is the party that bears the ultimate responsibility. And now we turn to a very special interview with our guest, Shuzhana Zeleni, who is a Hungarian politician and expert in foreign policy, formerly an MP in the Hungarian parliament, firstly as a member of the Fidesz party in the 1990s, and then second time on the other side, the opposition camp, as the founding member of the centrist party together. And most recently, just as of this very month of November, an author of, of a book that details Hungary's descent into autocracy at, uh, at the, during the reign of uh, Mr. Viktor Orban, Tainted Democracy, Viktor Orban and the Subversion of Hungary by Zsuzsanna Zeleni. Uh, the link will be provided in the description of the podcast, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello, Zsuzsanna. It's very nice to have you here today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Now, I have little doubts that uh, your book, Tainted Democracy, Viktor Orban and the Subversion of Hungary, is a monumental piece of literature for understanding the modern political context of Hungary, but also a guide for today's toolkit of an autocrat that has been honed and perfected by Mr. Orban over his years in power, particularly if we look at the polls, or shall we say the revolution at the polls for the Fidesz party, which resulted in a landslide victory of the 2010 elections, as well as the more recent 2022 general elections. You yourself were once part of the Fidesz Youth Party at the crux of regime change in Hungary in 1988, serving as a member of parliament until 1994, when you switched to a professional career in advocacy and consultancy for NGOs and international organizations including the Council of Europe in Strasbourg. Uh, you notably made a comeback to Hungarian politics in 2012, however, this time on the side of the opposition. So it is fair to say that you know the ins and outs of the Fidesz politics and more importantly, how it has evolved over the last two decades. In your book, you provide a detailed account of the erosion of democratic security in Hungary, ranging from the overhaul of the parliament, the constitution and the judicial system to cracking down on NGOs and media freedom. Uh, I think a good phrase from your book that sums it up notes the level of concentration of power by a single political party or force previously unseen in European democracies. In last week's episode here at Visegrad Insight, uh, your colleague Wojtek and Edith discussed the increasing likelihood of European Commission approving Hungary's recovery plan, which would open up some 5.8 billion euros in EU funds. And it's I'm not even talking about the EU next generation funds here. Uh, the Hungarian parliament has been active in improving anti-corruption, anti-graft laws to address rule of law concerns voiced by the EU. Um, currently, Budapest is expected to enact 17 amendments to its legislation, including the creation of an anti-corruption authority that would oversee um, the administration of these EU funds. Uh, Zsuzsanna, given the monopoly the state has on power and resources in Hungary, 
What will these changes mean for undercutting the systemic corruption present? Well, interestingly, uh, this package that is now required by the European Union in order that Hungary get access to the uh, European financial funds uh, for the next uh, seven years, uh, uh, quite a substantial uh, anti-corruption law package uh, was approved by the Hungarian parliament. However, uh, the, it's still not accepted. The, the European Union, the Commission specifically, is looking for further, further uh, modifications and corrections. And this is not without reason. This package is, is substantial and significant. It has several elements, reinstating the rule of law, strengthening the autonomy of the independence of the judiciary, putting a corruption in the in the public arenas uh, to an end, basically, um, promoting freedom of information and, and, and providing altogether larger transparency for uh, use of EU funding. Uh, how The reason why the EU is pushing further uh, corrections is uh, very similar to the perception of Hungarian organizations, uh, opposition parties and watchdog organizations, that Many of these uh, laws uh, and, and anti-corruption uh, regulations are very, very half-hearted. For example, there is a, a European authority uh, which is controlling EU funds, the public prosecutor of the EU. Now, the Hungarian government did not propose to join the uh, office of the public prosecutor, which would have been very easy and straightforward. Instead, they established a sort of uh, uh, integrity authority, which is an anti-corruption authority. Uh, but this authority has very limited mandates and uh, cannot override the decisions of the Hungarian public prosecutor. It also, it was very questionable how the different leaders of this, of this uh, authority were selected in the last couple of years, for example, the application process was started earlier than the selection criteria was set. So there was a lot of lot of little things which the Hungarian government still um, used in order to, you know, to distort these these processes. And and I could say several many other uh, examples how everything was happening. Also the judiciary, why there is a, a strengthening of um, of a control bodies of the of the judges over the judiciary system at the same time uh, in practice some judges were were warned by the Hungarian government because they met the the new US ambassador and they seemed that they were not supposed to do that so there are very very interesting things and obviously there are a lots of question mark how this uh, package will actually work in practice. Uh, there's a lot of doubts about that, both in Hungary and in Brussels. But I think there is a very strong uh, will from the Hungarian government to get this uh, money. Unlike in Poland, it's, it's absolutely necessary. Hungary has beyond 20% inflation at the moment. We are very heavily dependent on Russian uh, energy sources. Uh, the government badly overspent before the elections. Uh, obviously, this is part of the reason of the, the high uh, inflation. So 
the, the government, Hungarian government is under big pressure because of its own mistakes and, uh, and does need badly this, this funds. So on the other hand, uh, from the, uh, the European Union institutions, by definition, would like to make a, an agreement with Hungary. So that, that comes from the nature of the European Union. The conflict is, is very difficult to manage by the, by the European Union. And, uh, and uh, they also would like to finish every complicated issue uh, if it's possible. I mean, in Hungary's case, that's the end of the year. So I, I also believe that the agreement will be made, but we, a lot of Hungarians would only be happy with the outcomes if the EU is very uh, strictly monitoring how everything is applied. It's, yeah, as you say, lots of question marks, and it's it will be definitely interesting to see if in this two-level game, uh, Brussels will be able to defend the position that is um, the voice of consciousness that is voiced in the European Parliament, um, or at least to what extent, uh, from, from what I'm hearing in your response. Uh, I think uh, what is also going on um, fits in well with a chapter of your book uh, uh, titled A Political Tap Dance. Uh, it zeroes in on the strategy of negotiations Orban has chosen vis-a-vis -vis Brussels. Uh, we have seen uh, a track record of the government to be loud in its anti-EU rhetoric domestically while seeking compromises in the negotiating room, sending technocrats and Fidesz politicians to lobby in European capitals. Um, how do you see this um, happening now? Um, it, it's, it would be interesting to hear about uh, whether you see there has been a change in Orban's positioning or influence. Basically, uh, Viktor Orban introduced a new uh, paradigm of Hungarian foreign policy in 19, uh, 2010. Uh, in the first 20 years after the regime change, uh, the, the foreign policy, there was a very strong foreign policy consensus, I think also in the whole region, which uh, focused on good neighborhood relations. This was obviously very important for Hungary. And then uh, European orientation and transatlantic orientation and, and integration to the, you know, the Western organization altogether very quickly. I think uh, this was, and also in Hungary's case, a kind of care for Hungarian minorities in, in neighboring countries. So these were the kind of three pillars of Hungarian foreign policy for 20 years. This has completely changed uh, in 2010. Uh, and the reason behind was that Orban felt that the West is losing its global power. There are other powers which are emerging. Uh, Turkey, Russia, China, and others, uh, which which might be interesting to mention. Um, Singapore. He he also mentioned a couple of uh, countries which were not uh, liberal democracies, and he made the conclusion that in the future, not only liberal democracies will will able to uh, will be able to make. Um, very high living standards and and uh, good life and progress in societies, but also autocratic regime. And he started to open up towards these regimes with the motivation uh, that if if he puts Hungarian po foreign policy to several more legs, 
then he can negotiate with the European institutions with stronger uh, base. So that was basically his uh, his his belief, and uh, until you know, in a globalized world, uh, when the relations are basically fine among countries, such a balancing uh, tiptoe dance and tap dance um, is is quite manageable. Uh, whether it's use, useful for for Hungary, uh, or uh, that's very questionable. But but at least he could do it for many years, and um, he really didn't meet too many obstacles in the European uh, partners and and transatlantic organizations, uh, because of course many other countries also made a lot of trade relationship to other powers than than Europeans and Western ones. But uh, Orbán was always uh, uh, committed and openly spoke about uh, some kind of systemic openness towards these regimes. Uh, when he uh, made in 2014, he declared Hungary or his state as a illiberal state. That was a clear uh, distinction from liberal democracy, Western liberal democracy. And uh, he openly uh, stepped up with a representative of a different kind of regime and a different kind of foreign policy, which is more um, a power-based uh, and uh, an individual, he called it sovereignist uh, uh, foreign policy, which uh, he meant by stronger representation for Hungarian national interests. But of course, if you were watching it from Hungary or carefully or from neighboring countries, it was very visible that um, that this was oftentimes uh, representing interests of certain circles and business circles in Hungary closer to the prime minister and not necessarily for Hungary. For example, when, when they made a deal um, rather secret way with uh, Russia on on uh, building a new nuclear power plant in 2014, or when they made a big, uh, uh, again, secret agreement with China on a new uh, railway uh, system uh, from Belgrade um, to Budapest. Uh, these were very questionable, uh, uh, very questionable steps in terms of Hungarian national interest, because, because these uh, big investments were completely untransparent and made uh, Hungary very dependent on either Russia or China, at least financially, if not politically. So, uh, so that this this issue is is really very tricky. Now he he still he could do it until I think very strongly Orbán made conflicted interests with the European Union and. Um, slowly, slowly, the EU institutions, which means uh, European allies and partners, uh, understood that what this kind of tap dance politics is, is a problem for the European Union. And it's also harmful for, for EU interests, for the interests of European countries altogether. And um, I think the war in Ukraine uh, significantly uh, changed the situation and made it more complicated for Viktor Orban because, well, he he is a person who usually wants people to take a side. 
you know, he's a very polarizing figure. He always wants uh, people in Hungary and wherever he is to stand by him, or if not, then they are regarded like enemies. Now, in he, he got into this situation. And when the European countries mainly uh, stood very strongly uh, by Ukraine, and also I can say that most Hungarians are very supportive to Ukraine and believe that Ukraine is a victim in this war and Russia is the aggressor. This created a difficult situation because over the past 10 years, Orban made a very a friendly relationship to Vladimir Putin, Russia. And of course, when there's a conflict, a war uh, with such a regime, then this, this uh, balancing uh, behavior is just not tolerable any longer. So I think now he is in a, in a really cornered uh, by the European uh, allies. I just uh, read today that that the Visegrad cooperation, the next uh, meeting is not going to take place because the Czech and the Slovak government announced they're not ready to speak to um, their Hungarian counterparts, specifically the parliament. So that these are very, very uh, serious issues and a huge loss of confidence from Hungary's uh, allies and friends and neighbors. And I of course, believe that this is really a big problem and it influences very badly the Hungarian interest, which is still very important that we, we keep among all those allies who are our neighbors and Europe's and who also represent uh, uh, the Western values. He, he does seem to be in a precarious position, which uh, begs the question of uh, what is his current relationship with uh, the Europe's far right? Um, you recently wrote a piece available in German and French, as I have seen, uh, on the tandem between Orban and Italy's new prime minister, the far-right leader of the Brothers of Italy party, Giorgia Meloni. Um, and if we connect it to what you write in your book, uh, you mention Orban's perfecting the art of masking an authoritarian regime as an ideological struggle. Um, so we wouldn't be a stretch to say that Orban has reimagined Hungarian nationalism uh, in that sense. But what does it mean for his current relationship with Europe's far right? But Viktor Orban has uh, lengthily navigated in his par uh, his party within the the European center right, uh, uh, namely the European People's Party, where Fidesz joined um, in the, in the two thousands after being after leaving liberals behind and uh, he he was very uh, strongly allied with the, with the with the conservative parties in europe however uh, in the last 10 years uh, he got a lot of criticism because uh, many of the conservative parties that didn't believe that Fidesz is a conservative party uh, because uh, and because of Orbán's uh, openly illiberal turns, they just didn't think it's uh, it's uh, it can be combined with European uh, conservatism. Uh, however, the party kept Orbán's party Fidesz very much among its partners until they really pulled and stretched uh, all the debates uh, and uh, and the the relationship become very poisoned 
And finally, the conservative, the center-right parties in Europe decided that they get rid of Fidesz party, so Orban just uh, left them uh, before the final decision. Now, and but then he he basically was left behind. So the, you know, if you are writer than the center right, then you are on the extreme, and and uh, because on his own, no party in Europe or the international field can make any significant influence. Therefore, uh, Orban had to try to build new relationships, and the new relationships are on the uh, far right. And uh, obviously, he was interested in far-right parties in countries where these parties might come to power. And Italy, uh, where there are several radical right parties uh, for years, was an important uh, possible alliance. And in the last five years, there were significant steps from Viktor Orban's party to to make this relationship uh, closer and more friendly. And uh, while I'm pretty sure that they are going to do this in the coming years, uh, it's also important for for Italy's uh, leading coalition. However, uh, for them, uh, Hungary is definitely not the most important partner. Italy is a funding member of the EU and the Eurozone. It's It's a big, crucial European country. So in order to to be able to govern Italy well and also keep Italy's influence in the European Union, their major partners are the French and uh, other bigger parties and definitely not Hungary. But ideologically, in terms of being far right um, and in terms of make their radical politics acceptable, which brought them to power, it's definitely the case in Italy, they they really have to keep together and learn from each other because these radical right parties are emerging, they are developing, they uh, and there are now two countries in, in the European Union when they are on power. So there is a natural natural uh, uh, need for cooperation uh, between the two and they have a lot to learn from each other and a lot of people can learn from Orban not because Hungary is so big or influential but because he's on power now for 12 years continuously and his fame basically uh, the, the source the source of his fame is basically that he could keep power over and over again and how he did this, uh, that is what he is selling among the extreme right as a secret or as a secret recipe. Um, but the way how did it, well, how he did it was b- because he made Hungary an autocratic country. So uh, liberal democracy, and I would say democracy is deeply questionable now in Hungary. So this is the threat. What what Orban's methodology and playbook poses for any other countries in Europe. I agree with your assessment, and uh, it seems to me also um, it accurately uh, explains why perhaps we see the failure of uh, this uh, far-right alliance to collectivize itself in a grouping uh, in the European Parliament. So whether it's in a proto-stage or 
uh, or for other reasons. But uh, to go uh, beyond Europe and add on this notion of the liberal state, um, it's interesting to talk about here the role of China, specifically what role Beijing plays in reinforcing the tainted democracy of the Orban administration. Uh, last week, uh, we at Visegrad Insight published a piece by it. It's good arguing that through Chinese investments and business opportunities, China plays a system supporting and system legitimizing um, a role uh, in the uh, for, for the Orban in support of the Orban regime. Um, according to you, what have been the limitations and in some parts maybe successes of Orban's commitment to a China-friendly policy? I think the first of all, this is a threat uh, because uh, I don't think that um, so the, the Victor Orban started to look at China like ten years ago with his project as the Eastern opening uh, to diversify Hungarian's um, Hungarian export and trade relations, which is heavily. Uh, EU-oriented and basically 95% uh, Western countries and European countries are on Hungary's trade partners. So the uh, the original idea was to um, to make new partners, but over the years they figured out that actually the Hungarian companies are not really able to to sell anything in China because Hungary is just too small, its industry is not developed enough, and uh, we cannot really offer specific things what the Chinese would be interested. So the, the, the Eastern opening policy of Viktor Orban changed its profile and actually started to uh, work on taking more Chinese investment into Hungary. And I think uh, the Orban regime also hoped or still hoping that the country can get significant, substantial investment from China, from Eastern countries, uh, if Hungary cannot get enough money from Western partners. Um, so far, this whole project was actually very much a failure uh, because Hungary is just really a small country for China. The only interesting thing we can sell to China is that we are in the European Union. So without that, Hungary would be completely uninterested for Chinese partners. This, this legitimizing element is there because Hungary is within the EU. So it's, uh, it's also a situation that uh, if anyone in Hungary would think that uh, a Chinese or other Eastern relationship in terms of uh, in financial investments uh, can change our Western um, embeddedness. I would say it, it's a it's a big failure. It it's just doomed to fail uh, because Hungary is not specifically uh, rich in in funding. Uh, this is a a small country which doesn't have too much financial resources or any kind of other resources. So we always need uh, foreign investment. Uh, for 50 years, Hungary, or even 100, I can say, the Hungary always needed foreign investment in order to develop. And this will not change very easily. So that's a cru critical question for any Hungarian government. And uh, 
obviously it's the EU funding and Western investment which keep the Hungarian economy moving. And changing this with any other one is is just uh, not really possible. So they, but this very expensive. They make a lot of effort, um, but uh, uh, I think it's just uh, just really really wasteful, and it's it's very very problematic for Hungary. And because of we don't know these relationship with China uh, are absolutely not transparent in in any possible way. Obviously, this is also kind of you know security threat threat for for Hungary and for for the European Union. Yes, and um, if we take a long-term perspective into the future, a common question that comes up is uh, what does Mr. Orban has have up his sleeves for the future? Um, U.S. Fidesz expert and former insider. Um, analyzing your statements and uh, in interviews, um, you repeatedly mentioned that the set of consensual rules between the Hungarian public or the electorate and the government has been grossly undermined since 2010. Um, so how might Fidesz look like without Orban's leadership? And uh, I guess the bigger question is ooh, that what are the realities of dismantling this parallel state that he has cultivated over uh, his years in power? Well, it's very difficult to see uh, the future of, of the party without Orban because the way how Fidesz party is built up since the mid-90s is that this is Viktor Orban's party. So everything is around him. Uh, he is the uh, he has the, the political power. He has the power on on all the business circles uh, which are around Fidesz. They are all these circles are all dependent on him, uh, and he is. Um, he's playing with uh, fit some of the Fidesz party politician, co uh, politicians who might uh, created some kind of resources for power, either uh, because of financial power or, or human power. I mean, uh, bigger uh, group groupings behind them. So uh, it's very urban centric. Uh, I would say it only exists because of Viktor Orban uh, keeps it together. It's a very diverse group. It's very important uh, that uh, that Viktor Orban can finances this clientele, uh, and it's very important that it keeps this uh, nationalistic, uh, polarizing ideology uh, very strongly because these are somehow the things money and certain ideologies which keep this very very diverse group of voters and um, interests uh, together so it's, it's as i said it's difficult to imagine whether fides can remain as a party uh, without orban at all because uh, because but he, the party exists exists in this format because of him so uh, that's a that's a, a question for the future. Really difficult to to forecast anything, and uh, Orban is still there. So uh, whoever wants uh, him to uh, you know to resign, either 
out from Fidesz, from a political opposition or in the Fidesz party, then the first step is, is to, to beat him, to be, you know, better than him. Or, well, there are millions of scenarios how such people uh, finally have to give up power. Uh, history says uh, all kinds of examples. And of course, it's, uh, it's very problematic to see Hungary's future in this regard, because uh, rarely such changes are very peaceful. Fair enough. And uh, I think your book uh, does a great job of emphasizing the challenge for the opposition and uh, how, and the, as well as the opposition tactics over the years. Um, to end, I cannot miss the opportunity. Um, the conclusion of your book truly gave me goosebumps. Um, as an audit to your political journey in Hungary, you state that your generation, the Fidesz generation, has failed. More importantly, you go on to say that it will be up to the next generation of Hungarians to extricate themselves from the illusion of lost greatness. I, I think this is a very important point, and the lessons to draw here are uh, goes beyond Hungary, in my opinion. It's important for other CE countries as well, like Poland and its born free generation. Um, can you tell our listeners a bit more about what you mean? The Fidesz's story started with an understanding of Hungary's history. And uh, this history uh, always got in trouble when it was not very realistic and it could not really see uh, Hungary's people on the right um, on the right side of history and see ourselves in a in a realistic way there are many countries in the world which over their history once were bigger or smaller i mean we all, specifically in our countries but many other parts of the world uh, because borders were always changing uh, be, before the nation state uh, period in in the middle ages this uh, big power politics was all about taking uh, territory and and uh, some, there are some countries which were able to, you know, put themselves in peace with where they are. Uh, let's say the Finnish uh, or, you know, <laughs> Icelandic or some of the Nordics, which were also most of their history under some kind of occupation, uh, but do not necessarily want to, you know, to uh, get a revenge. And this is a very psychological thing. It's, it's, uh, it's personal psychology, but it's also national psychology. What kind of um, self-awareness we, we do have uh, about ourselves. And I think Hungarians are, have a problem in this regard. And we could just never really uh, um, digest uh, who we are and how big we are and what is ours and what can we add to the word and how can be how can we be happy among the conditions uh, the 20th century uh, ended and therefore there is always a chance for political parties uh, to use uh, this nationalist uh, argument and call the Hungarians as a hungry country bigger than what is that, what it is uh, it's, it's, I think it's easy. It's, it's cheap. Uh, you know, it's much more complicated to, um, to digest, uh, uh, our society and our, uh, past and our history. And, uh, 
but in you know for easy for easy political victory you can always say we we are actually bigger when we want to be big again I, I, it's not very hungarian specificity you can see it in serbia you can see it in uh, russia you can see it in in many other countries of the world uh, but this is a this is always a problem and it just demonstrates to me that that uh, we still do did not what we we have to in order to be a healthy healthy nation if we we always dream of uh, something bigger uh, and we just cannot accept who who we really are so this this is basically the the conclusion of my book until so when when we are once beyond this point of of history of urbanism we re, we have to do a lot of things it's not enough that we put our institutions democratic institutions in order and uh, we look after our you know national wealth and uh, finances we also have to uh, see who we are and what comes with us and also accept good and bad element of our past it's not only pos possible that we we always look at ourselves as as a lost you know a lost power so that's that that's a complex uh task we our next generation should do and well we my generation the fetus generation well, definitely has a responsibility because because there was a, a very strong great chance after 1990 in the whole region well whether we use this period really well or not uh, i think uh, it's relevant to to evaluate from time to time uh, all over Central and Eastern Europe.